This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content, or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, you'll get to sit in on Amy Wright's recent conversation with Kentucky native and acclaimed singer-songwriter S.G. Goodman. Goodman's new album, Teeth Marks, was released in June of this year, via Verve Forecast, and it sees the artist exploring the traumas of unrequited love and her experiences as a queer woman coming up in rural Kentucky as part of a strict, church-going family. Goodman's critically acclaimed Jim James-produced debut album, Old Time Feeling, put her on the map and Teeth Marks pushes her even further out there, establishing her as one of the most compelling artists around today. We're super excited to have her on the show. So please, without further ado, join us in welcoming S.G. Goodman, right here on Insights. Thank you so much for you know taking the time. I can't wait to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, excited. So so where did, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Kentucky? Were you near where you are now or... Yeah, so I live about an hour from where I was raised. I was born in uh, western Tennessee, um, Obine County, and was raised right over the state line in a little town called Hickman, Kentucky, on the Mississippi River, and have, at this point in my life, chosen to stay kind of close to home, and I love Kentucky, and, you know, I don't know if I'll always be here, um, but I'll probably be back here. So was your family into farming? Yeah, so I, I come from a, a farming tradition, and my brother and father still farm together, and a lot of my extended family still farm, and was, uh, you know, I mean, everybody at one time in that area had a little farm that them and their family worked on, and my grandfather um, was a, uh, a farmhand for a gentleman uh, back in the fifties and late fifties and, um, ended up when that farmer retired, he bought his equipment and became a sharecropper and, and built a, uh, a pretty impressive legacy. And, you know, my brother and dad are still benefiting from it. So, you know, I'm, I'm in Memphis, that's where we live. And I grew up in the, in Memphis, but, um, my dad's family they're all farmers, and they grow rice in uh, Arkansas. And, yeah, uh, well, it, that uh, Memphis was my closest, largest town growing up, and uh, Fulton County, Kentucky, I believe, still is the only county in Kentucky that grows rice. A lot of people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. You know what? I didn't know they grew rice there. Yeah, because the reason why they grow rice in Arkansas is, of course, they take advantage of the fact the Mississippi River 
is there and you can flood you can flood the fields a lot more easily mm -hmm. having access to all that water. Yeah, it's the same situation in, in Fulton County and um, it's a pretty interesting crop and um, it's kind of neat that, you know, my county does that still. So did you grow any cotton growing up then? Because this is a big cotton growing area as well. Yeah, well, that area, it used to be cotton country for sure. And then uh, I believe it was maybe in the 70s or early 80s, the markets changed to where made more lot, made a lot more sense to grow soybeans in replace of it. And then when I was uh, in my early teenage years, um, they started growing cotton back in, in that area. And um, we never grew cotton but my dad did a lot of custom planning for people who decided to give cotton a try and um yeah it's definitely it's a neat plant um but it, it was something seeing you know thousand acres of uh, white blooms where i wasn't used to seeing it before it's beautiful it is beautiful if people who haven't seen it when you drive down through mississippi for example when it's cotton season and you look out and it looks like snow and then if you stop and you touch it you realize how soft it is it's almost softer when it's growing in a field like that than when they process it and they you know you touch it has all that cotton oil that's still in it you know it's a beautiful plant yeah it's so amazing and um I, sometimes i'll i like i like that area one of my favorite towns in the united states is right outside of memphis clarksdale mississippi and I love driving down there while the cotton's blooming and uh, going and popping in a juke joint or something like that. But I've many a time stopped and pulled over and walked out in the fields for sure. Have you played any gigs in Clarksdale? We love that town. <laughs> no, I haven't played any gigs down there. Um, I've, I've seen some shows, um, but no, I haven't made my way to Clarksdale yet. I, I don't know. It, it might be nice not to play a gig there and just kind of leave it as a place where I get to enjoy music, you know. That's true. I was just talking to Charlie Musselwhite, and he's back in Clarksdale these days. He's traveled around the world, and he was uh, from Mississippi, and he's back in Mississippi. So he's kind of back home, kind of like you going home. Um, he was saying how nice it was to be back, you know. Uh, oh, so, yeah. So growing up, did you play guitar then when you were on the farm? Did you have time to play music or were you playing music at that point? No, not really. I, I started picking up the guitar later in my teenage years and um, I was, you know, made like my brothers to, to play piano as a, a little child and I didn't really take to it. Um, but no, music has always been a part of my family in our own way but that's not really uh, I, I definitely um uh you know my daddy kept me busy on the farm i wouldn't have had time to sit around and play guitar and he wouldn't have uh, found that very uh, enjoyable for me to do anyway <laughs> so <laughs> not not busy enough uh so no you're a good southern girl so did you go to church then and were you singing in church because that's such a big part of being a Southerner. Yeah, I would say that that was more of the origins of, of how music kind of infiltrated, you know, my life. 
Um, a lot of folks ask, do I remember my first concert? And I always say, not really, but I went to three concerts a week and that would be in church services. So that's where I learned different parts of music, no formal training, just from watching and participating. So yeah, I was raised in the church. Well, you know, I talk to a lot of musicians from the South, and, and the consistent theme is that they learned to sing in the church, and you learned how to mm -hmm. harmonize, and just it's just sort of around you. And I was wondering if you ever thought about that intersection between the church and, um, and music um, from the South, especially when you get into Pentecostal-type churches, because there's a lot of emotion there. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing. Uh, I was raised Southern Baptist in a, a very conservative congregation, and so our instruments were limited. They didn't really want emotion to be stirred in that way. I've been to different denominations and know exactly what you're talking about. But I think, um, you know, a lot of people, even if they haven't been in church all their life can identify when something sounds or evokes the sound of a hymn. And I think that that is something that is uh, really undeniable in the way that I hear melody and appreciate melody. And I think it's because it feels ancient. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot no matter what you believe, you know, I'm not, I don't participate in church at all um, these days. And, um, but there's still something to be said uh, for people who believe that when they were singing, that God was listening to them. And I think even if you, you know, no longer hold that belief, but uh, we're, we're brought up singing in that type of belief, I don't think that leaves you. So, yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm a fiddle player and I mm -hmm. grew up in the Church of Christ, which was might be more conservative than Baptist, I think. And we, we eventually, my family yeah. kind of switched churches because it was a little bit too, too conservative. But the crazy part was they wouldn't allow any instruments in the church because they had mm -hmm. this belief that sing and make music from your heart. There was some verse in the Bible. And so it mm -hmm. all had to be about singing. And so when it came to Christmas time, I took my fiddle and I played it at other people's churches, <laughs> just not my own. <laughs> so, that was cool. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, lots of jokes about that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. And, and well, in the South, you can kind of joke about it because it's like there's a church on every corner and all sorts of stuff going mm -hmm. on. Um, so when did you actually start yeah, writing music? I mean, that's another tough one, too. I think I started writing music before I realized that's what I was doing. I mean, the earliest memory I have of thinking that I was doing anything of that nature was I was my parents had bought a, a stand up piano and uh my dad was in our living room. I was probably, I don't know, five or younger, probably around five years old. And I told him to come into the, it was our, our, it was kind of like a toy room, but 
my parents live in a little ranch home and um, had my dad come in there and stand by me at the piano. And I said, listen, this sounds like a scary song. And I played out a little, uh, you know, melody. And he said, that really does. You know, I was picking out things that sounded familiar. And so who knows really when I started writing, but that's kind of my earliest memory of thinking I was doing something musical and uh, realizing that. So when is your first memory of a song that you wrote, that you had lyrics, that you, you know, this is my first song and I'm going to sing it for somebody? Well, the thing is, I didn't sing much for anybody and I didn't like to be asked to. Um, but I remember, you know, I, I grew up, I had chores growing up. And uh, one of my chores was to put the dishes away even before I could reach everywhere they needed to go. So I, I remember standing up on my cabinets in the kitchen and singing a chorus. And uh, I think <laughs> there was a young there was a young artist at that time in country music that was a kid. I think his name was like Billy Gillum or something like that. Um I think he had a, a, a song out called One Voice Was Heard. And I just, you know, I was allowed to watch CMT growing up. And uh, anyway, I remember standing on my kitchen cabinets, putting up glasses and uh, belting out a, uh, a chorus. And so I, I guess that would be probably the first time. So I was probably, if I couldn't, you know, reach that far, I was probably less than eight years old. Mm -hmm. So you go through high school. Did you go to college after after high school? Or I did. I, I didn't intend to. I didn't really have a any motivation to do that. Um, I mean, I, I I figured I would do that at some point, but um, there was a gentleman close by to the college I ended up going to, which is Murray State University. And he was putting out records by people locally, but they sounded really great. They said that, you know, if you grew up and people handing you mixtapes or whatever of their recordings, they normally kind of sounded like shit. And his didn't. <laughs> it sounded like something you would hear on the radio or whatever. And so I reached out to him and then enrolled into college two weeks before it began. Didn't know anything about what I was getting into, but I ended up, I, I have a degree in philosophy and a creative writing minor and um, was able to cut a couple records um, during college and actually met uh, one of my current band members who's been with me for 12 years while I was at college and other people who have played with me the same amount of time. And so even though I might, who knows what my life would have been like if I would have uh, skipped that whole thing. I don't regret my degree at all. Uh, I just, you know, I don't like the student debt for, like anybody. But, um, you know, I was pretty close to Nashville the whole time. I might ought to have went and squatted in a house in East Nashville and tried to do music. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Never know. Well, you know, it's it just sort of from the outside, it would seem that a degree in philosophy and creative writing would play right into writing music and lyrics because 
you know, you're trying to um, write about a story and, and, but evoke an emotion or an idea or a concept and you sort of had both degrees, you know, where mm-hmm. you're imparting wisdom and you're also creative writing. So um, it seems like that would actually lend itself to, to writing songs. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it plays a role and is evident in ways that a lot of people that if, you know, if they were aware that that's my background, they might see some references there. Um, but yeah, I definitely don't regret, uh, you know, having a degree in philosophy has definitely changed my life and uh, definitely influences how I view the world for sure. It's all songwriting is how you view the world. So what was the music scene like in Murray when you were there? You know, Murray is a small town and there were lots of different types of music here. The music I gravitated to the most, there was a pretty prominent post-punk scene in Murray when I was um, in college and made a lot of friends in that world. And I even played shows under the same kind of music you're hearing me put out today, which doesn't exactly go together, you know, but I would get on bills with the boys in town and uh, different bands that would come through. There's a little local record shop here, a little independent record store called Terrapin Station that is a great listening room and really facilitated a music scene here. So... I I mostly was influenced by what was going on in that world. And I think that that's evident in my music as well and and definitely evident in what I listen to. But um, because Murray was such a small place, there was pretty much something of every genre that you could think of here. And uh, we all did our best to support each other and, and make sure that, everybody if they wanted to play they could and so um, I owe a lot to this community and and you know different organizers um kind of passion for for facilitating that kind of community in such a small place is Terrapin still there I'm a big fan of record stores oh yeah Terrapin I believe it's on its 36th year started uh in a house by a couple of deadheads, wonderful couple. And um, they um, they have a storefront in the edge of town, and I don't think it's going anywhere, but it's definitely a, a, a dying, from a dying breed, but it's not dying. Really, we're so lucky to have it. So how did you get started then? So when did you put out your a demo or a, an album, and were you signed to a... a a label? How did that sort of come about for you? Well, when I started working with the guy close to my college, I really owe a lot to him about probably, I probably owe so much of my career to him with, with some of the things he he told me I was 18 when I started working with him and I was making pop music and um, he told me something that I think allowed me years later to have a good perspective on trying to make it from a small town, which is the people you're playing with 
at the bars and you're a little small town, they're your peers, but they're not your only one. If you want to do something with yourself, the people making music in New York City are your peers. That's 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 who, you know, it's not like competition, but those are people that if your music isn't as good as theirs, it doesn't matter if if you're, you know, a big fish in a small pond somewhere. And so I um I started paying attention to what was going on in other cities and reached out to a producer um, in Nashville, Scholar Wilson, and and did a crowdfunding situation for a record under the pseudonym I used to go under, the Savage Radley. We uh, put out a record on, I created a little heart project, um, record label, Slew Water Records, put that record out. And a lot of the connections I made through doing that and also the lessons learned there allowed me to meet people um, from different cities um, and to be taken seriously from people in other cities. And through those connections, I um, one had the confidence to make my debut record, Old Time Feeling. I didn't have a label when I made that record. I didn't have a manager when I made that play or that record. But the, some of the connections and that decision to, you know, to view myself on the same level from people not from this area, um, I would say, are really why I'm sitting here talking to you. So, Old Time Feeling, was that produced by Jim James of My Morning Jacket? Or was that it was co it, it was co-produced by Jim James. Mm -hmm. I produced all my own records. So, um he, uh, yeah, Jim came in and we did pre-production together. And then uh, he was unable to be with me in the studio. He, he, he came in one night for a listen. Um, so, you know, I took the reins in that moment. And then we mixed it together out in L.A. with uh, Kevin Ratterman, another Kentuckian. And I uh, recorded it in La La, at La La Land, Kevin's old studio in Louisville. And, um, yeah, that record... You know, I had a friend who I, I made through the process of making my first record that I put out, uh, Kudzu, under the different pseudonym. She passed it along to uh, my current manager and um, kind of was quick moving from there on out. What were some of the themes that you addressed in your first album? Because I know that, that you're very much in touch with working folks. And, and, you know, kind of certain things. So what were you addressing in the first album? Well, I think rural representation should come from rural people. Um, you know, music has a big history. Even some of my heroes are just uh, rich children. And it takes a lot of pressure off of you when... Uh, you know, you come from money and have back in or can live in a, a cool city and not worry about, you know, paying the rent or whatever. And I like the idea um, of being true to myself and um, writing songs from stories I know, which is I'm the daughter of, you know, 
a rich family or anything like that. I'm from working class people. My grandfather, my mother's father was a, a union man at Goodyear Tire in Union City, Tennessee. And my grandfather was a sharecropper and my family still sharecrops. And I think that's a, a, a lifestyle and a, a, a position in society that a lot of people uh, get wrong. And a lot of times, you know, we don't need rich people's kids singing about working man problems. Um, authenticity shines through. And so I do my best. I, I'm not a poster child for any of those things. But like I said, you know, a writer just puts out music in the way they see the world. And that's the world I grew up in. Isn't it interesting when people try to comment on someone else's existence that they know nothing about? And, um, and they, what's interesting is they have opinions about it <laughs> sometimes, and they don't understand yeah. at all, you know, what's going on there. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we're all guilty of it. I'm not going to say I've never commented on somebody's life that I don't have any business commenting on. <laughs> um, but it, I, I think, you know, the world is starved. For authenticity and it's so easily to present yourself as something that you're not especially on social media these days or get the right publicist that can come up with a good story and so I just have always felt pretty convicted in whatever medium that I, I'm choosing to interact with people on social media or not um, to do my best to be myself and um, you know I think in doing that, you're going to hear a lot about, you know, socioeconomic issues or you're going to hear about um, rural representation because that's my life. You know, that's part of my life and it's easy to do if it's true. So two people come to mind with similar traditions of um, songwriting Woody Guthrie and John Prine come from those sort of traditions of talking about um, rural America and, um, you know, what goes on there and the themes and, and the challenges that people face. Do you consider yourself a little bit in that tradition, long tradition of um, storytellers? Well, I mean, I would never... Uh try to throw myself in a group with Woody Guthrie or, or John Prine, but I would say that I come from the best storytellers that are around, you know, and you don't, I mean, writing a song isn't much different from the stories I heard on, on back porches. Um, that's where I learned, um, you know, if you don't say something interesting in an interesting way, <laughs> People aren't going to sit around for your stories much, and I think that no, might be, <laughs> you know, a pretty good a pretty good thing to consider when when you're thinking about being a storyteller. And it's something that if you're around good storytellers and you want to talk back, you've got to pick those things up. And and the same way about a story, true or not, whatever. I believe this about songs. If you can't remember what someone's saying, then who cares? So even if they're saying something profound, you know, if it isn't in a palatable way where a person walks out of that bar or venue or whatever and remembers what or how you said it, who cares? You know, so 
being able to remember songs or have something impact you to where it leaves an imprint to me that's one of the only goals of music if if not it's just self-serving to the writer well you know my dad was a really great storyteller he he could mm -hmm. captivate a room and he he said to me one time he goes now, sometimes I have to stretch the facts just a little bit to keep everyone interested. He said, so don't let the truth, truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> mm -hmm. and I, yeah, I, said, I mean, that's, that's a good Southerner. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Got to be a little careful with that, but I, I'm a big believer in that myself. Nobody wants to be bored to death, you know? Right. Keep them, keep them interested. So when you write songs, do they reflect where you are in your life, where society happens to be, a little of both. I mean, um, where are you it's sort of in your head when you're writing these songs? Who knows? Um, I mean, sure, I guess all the above, but at the same time, you know, for instance, the song The Way I Talk off my first album, Old Time Feeling, that song took many, many years to write. Um, and old time feeling. It, you know, I, I wrote that three plus years before that album came out. And guess what? Still pretty applicable. Um, so I'm not really sure where I am or how I have to dissociate to get out of my own way while writing a song it's kind of a hard question to answer i don't have a method when it comes to songwriting it uh it's it's something i haven't i'm not a factory i haven't learned how to necessarily conjure that up so i'm not real sure how to answer that for you i'm sorry <laughs> let's get to the new album because i think that there's some interesting yeah, yeah. And it was released in june uh, via vera forecast records um, so where did you record the album? I recorded that album, uh, Teeth Marks, in Athens, Georgia. And I, I, I co-produced that with a man by the name of Drew Vandenberg. And it's a smaller studio. A lot of folks have recorded in there. Um, I thought it would be nice to maybe record in a different city, but still keep it in the South. Turns out. It's not because after you get done with a, a week and a half of 12 hour plus days, you got to drive eight hours back to your house. Um, <laughs> so I learned a hard lesson that way. Um, but, you know, Drew was a pleasure to work with. Like to fight with him a bit. And uh, I'm real proud of that record. It, it felt as a, a little difficult coming in after the pandemic when I haven't been you know rehearsing with the boys every week or whatever to to phone that one in but it was i'm proud of that record and and hope uh, it's it's been a real humbling experience to see people reacting to it i believe in the songs and um yeah check it out find it anywhere so teeth marks that that sort of evokes something has been left behind so tell me a little bit about teeth marks what is what does that mean to you yeah so a lot of times 
you know, you're asked if you wrote a concept album or something like that. And I would say, no, um, I, I haven't written a concept album yet, but there typically is a through line a lot of times. And after the record was recorded, I was listening back to it myself and trying to think of what was connecting in these songs. And I, I had already had a song on there called Teeth Marks. Um, I started thinking about that concept and, and the fact that really, I think what the majority of these songs, if not all of them were addressing throughout the whole album was the idea of uh, either the presence of love or the lack of love. It leaves marks on everybody. And I think you could see that in each song that ended up being on this record. And that's what I'm, I'm getting at. And that's why I named my album Teeth Marks. So um, what are what are some of the, so the songs about unrequited love, were you going through anything personally when you were writing this album? Or was this, were you commented, commenting about other people's lives? No, I mean, you know, it's, there's obviously love songs on the album. There's songs that are, are talking about friendships and, um, witnessing other people's pain but you know it i wrote songs they're definitely about myself and um but yeah so there's there's themes of romantic love of lack of love and empathy from society and um questions of how we love our neighbors um and also how we love ourselves so all those were are present on teeth marks and you know I'm the writer of, of, of the songs except for one track on the album. Uh, I co-wrote with uh, uh, bandmate Matt Rowan, uh, Work Until I Die. But um, yeah, aside from the majority of that song, I can't deny they're all from myself, personal experience. Let's talk about a couple of the other songs on the album. How about All My Love Is Coming Back To Me? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing sonically that I wanted to happen with this record was, you know, I'd played out live uh, old time feeling a lot. And there's not a ton of fast songs on that album. So I really wanted to push myself to have some rockers. And, uh, you know, like everybody, I went through the pandemic, too. And um, I'm not really known for writing the most uplifting songs and I needed a mantra to hold on to as, as much as anybody and that's what that song is about just b the belief that what you're putting out in the world is going to come back to you even if it's not right then how about keeper of the time yeah keeper of the time you know I'm a big uh, believer in therapy um, I still have uh, therapy every week even when I'm on the road and um, I just did a lot of thinking about how trauma stores in the body and how we all kind of have this personal responsibility, whether or not we were responsible for the trauma that we endured or not. But um, we have the power to um, understand that uh, better and and not be, you know, a slave to that. But. That's what that song's about. Work Until I Die. Yeah, like I said earlier, that is a song I heard, I don't know, probably 
three years before I went in the studio, I talked my bandmate Matt Rowan into uh, letting me record that song, this album. I, ever since I first heard it, I watched him and a group of friends perform it in a town close by. And it just struck me. I, I mean, Matt is an amazing songwriter and musician. And I love the theme of it. And so I told him that I had this idea for an outro on the song. And I also reworked a verse um, in, in kind of the body of the song. Um, but, you know, I wanted that record on this, this record because um, I was a fan of it. it. It spoke to me. So it's always... Um, or it, it's been an, a nice thing to have a song on there that you're a fan of and it doesn't feel at all like narcissistic <laughs> because <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> wasn't my baby to begin with and he let, he let it be. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of him for that. So you've been doing some solo touring lately. Do you enjoy traveling by yourself? I enjoy traveling by myself a hell of a lot more than traveling with other people. Um, I am not really an extrovert and I love all the boys I'm, I'm playing music with these days. Good people get along and uh, pretty much self, you know, sufficient on the road. But uh, I don't really want anybody breathing around me for more than a week. It's tough on me. Um, you know, I think, I can struggle with codependency and get worried about everybody's well-being slash uh, mood or possible um, and how they're enjoying something. And so it's, it, it's nice to travel by myself because I don't kind of fall into those cycles of, um, you know, some bad habits of, of, um, kind of letting all of my energy deplete because I'm not taking care of myself. And I think as the leading lady and the name on the ticket, um, I have a lot of people that want to talk to me and, you know, I'm carrying the show. And so it can be difficult to also feel responsible for a group of people while that pressure is, is there too. So it's a, it's a lot of work and mental gymnastics for me to be in a band and be in close proximity to others for long periods of time, for sure. Do you ever find it challenging to be in a relationship and also be a performer when you're worrying about two things at the same time, worrying about somebody else and also worrying about your music? Just a general relationship or you like a romantic relationship? A romantic relationship. Oh, I mean, of course. I don't have, it, it's pretty complicated and it takes a very special person to um, understand how in one way not flexible your life as a performer is and also you know I'm a up-and-coming artist I have to say yes pretty much to everything which is why I've been gone for nearly since last August and so it's pretty it, it, it's pretty difficult to um 
to find someone who is, you know, up for that kind of lifestyle and absence. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's pretty difficult. I love the album. I was listening to the whole thing last night and I just love your voice. It's beautiful. And just Thank how, you. how you, you know, seamlessly weave through all these different subject matters so amazingly. Um, I appreciate that. All right, folks, that's the end of the line for this edition of Insights. Thanks to Kentucky rock and roller S.G. Goodman for taking the time to chat about her sophomore album, Teeth Marks. With flavors of garage rock, Appalachian folk, post-punk, and indie rock, Goodman reminds us with her one-of-a-kind voice just how wonderful a songwriting inspiration heartache and pain can be. Check out her upcoming tour dates and listen to the new record now by visiting sggoodman.net. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.